tonight on Arena. Groundbreaking conductor Marin Alsop on performing Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. And we review the new production of Brendan Behan's The Queer Fella at the Abbey. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Brendan Behan's The Queer Fella opened last night at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. It was his first play, in fact, produced in 1954 at the very famous Pike Theatre at that time. It made him, it made Behan's name as a writer. Set in Mountjoy Prison, the action takes place over the course of a day and a night, the last 24 hours in the life of the titular Queer Fella, a murderer who is due to be executed, a character we never Never see on stage. In the Abbey production, Tom Creed directs a female and non-binary cast led by Barbara Brennan and Gina Moxley. Helen Meany was there last night for us and she's with me in studio this evening. Uh, it, it, it's a very well, I suppose, really well-known play of uh, Brendan Behan's, uh, a Dublin play undoubtedly. It hasn't been staged here since 1954, is that right? It's, it hasn't been staged on the Abbey stage. Oh, the Abbey, I beg your pardon, yeah. yeah. Um, which is, you know, that's, it, it'll be 40 years uh, right. next year. But there have been smaller productions. Yes, yeah. I mean, the last time I saw it was in the new theatre, you know, about about 12 years ago. Um, a, a much a smaller cast and all mm. of that. So it's, but it hasn't had that uh, kind of main stage, it hasn't been in our national theatre. Yeah, so it certainly hasn't had many productions no, in, in, no, the, in the intervening period. Mm. Uh, so um, this starts with uh, what other song could it start with other than the Owl Triangle? Rady Pete singing the Owl Triangle. Yes, yeah. What very, kind of atmosphere does that set for us, Helen? A very, a very um, powerful kind of emotive. Uh, I mean, her voice is so recognisable and mm. so rich, and um, and it's it's off stage. And we're looking at uh, a very obviously enclosed space of a prison. So it, it sets it sets that it's Behan, it sets that it's Dublin. Mm. Um, and it also, there's a sombre, there's a sombre undertone to her rendition of it. And I think as this production goes on, as we move into the second half in particular, it, it does become more sombre. There's a focus on the reality of the imminent execution of this prisoner. So what what started with as a kind of a subject of banter and joking among the very hardened f- fellow prisoners, they it all kind of uh, calms down into the realization of the closeness of death. And of course, you know that it, he could it could be one of them. It could yeah. have it could have been. And when you think about it, I mean, Behan was, we're talking about capital punishment and uh, 70 years ago, people seeing this, it's really capital punishment that was in the dock in this play. Behan was putting out the arguments against it. Very much so, very much. It's a critique, really. Mm. It's a a strong critique voiced through various characters, including one of the prison warders, and that's very interesting. So it's not, it's, it's, the critique is distributed among all the characters, and not in not in a predictable way, mm. but he's you know he's pointing out the absolute horror and brutality of this as a method of of state punishment or you know um, and there are lots of descriptions uh, of other we don't we don't see this execution yeah. when we never see the prisoner but what we get is in all of the conversations we get descriptions of other executions in great great 
physical detail. Yeah. And it's, you know, it is meant to be shocking and it was shocking at the time. And it still is, actually, that aspect of it. And again, there are aspects of this play which when we when we think about what we know now about what was going on in society around Mountjoy prison uh, 70 years ago, the, the, there's a scene where the, the prisoners are looking out the, the the window of the prison because of and he uses the word moths you know the yes, moths yes, the, the young yeah, women, women who yeah. are out hanging uh, up the laundry now yes. when we hear that now we know immediately what those who those young women were Absolutely. and what we mean by the laundry yes and and the idea that they they were in prisons all we know so much more about the the sort of extent of in, of incarceration mm. of people especially women in the, between the Magdalen laundries and the mother and baby homes but the but the you know, and all sorts of psychiatric institutions. And so that really is very interesting to come back to this play now and and see from the conversations, particularly of the prisoners, of the world outside the prison walls, you know, and the the comments on priests being drunk and, and fathering children mm. and and that and the sense of very rigid class hierarchies between there's a civil servant who arrives, there's a there's the the prison governor, there's all the the hierarchies within the uh, the prison guards and the wardens, and there's you know this question of holding on to your job, holding on to your position, um, because, of course, there weren't many jobs like that. Yeah, uh, and, and, uh, and one of the wardens says it's a soft job, you know, apart from the executions. Otherwise, it's a soft job. And that, you know yeah. what I mean? That's just yeah. so that's being is capturing. There's a lot of dark humour, but there's a lot of commentary, yeah. too, and particularly on hypocrisy. And it's it's interesting that given the position of women in society, particularly 70 years ago, that the cast that we're looking at here is a female and non-binary cast. What has Tom Creed, that's a that's a big directorial decision to make. What has Tom Creed done with that, Tom Creed, the director, done with that idea? Well, it's it's an interesting idea. Um, and it's I've, I felt it was an experiment almost because, you know, there's a risk with, you know, returning and sort of retrospectively gender balancing the canon. There's a risk of tokenism uh, mm. in that. And so it seemed to me that that this uh, casting of non-binary and female actors worked really well when you forgot about their gender, when the gender was incidental. Um, uh, to the performance and I suppose in the case of Gina Moxley and Barbara Brennan I really felt that I just saw that they, these were these were characters and which which characters are they playing they're playing within? really much older really weathered and um, uh, prisoners who've been in and out of prison for decades mm. uh, and in, in the case of um, the character played by Gina Moxley just called Neighbour she's a neighbour to the uh, Dunlavin who's played by um, uh, Brenda and um, so uh, she is she's been in prison in she's been in prison mm. in UK in England and in Ireland and sometimes for, for sentences just, just sentences just for shoplifting and minor things but but you get the sense they could almost be two OKC men yes. in, a, in a bar yeah. and they're both they're, they're both alcoholics and as soon as they get an opportunity to drink raw methylated spirits while the doctor is you know allegedly seeing to their gammy legs they're drinking it behind the, his back you know so they're they're utterly suffering from addiction and they're much older but you stop thinking 
thinking about whether they're male or no, female or maybe, performers. Yeah, and possibly um, that's the strength of it to be to be gender blind in yeah, the viewing. Gender blind in that case, I think in the cases in the case of some of the younger actors, they are less comfortable, and there's more a sense of that they're impersonating men or that they're performing a kind of masculinity, mm. and there's a straining of particularly of the using lower uh, vocal registers, right. you know, uh, deep voices, which are not their normal voices. Not their, and it doesn't sound often mm. comfortable and therefore it's distracting. Um, and so it seems to me there's a slight confusion between gender blind casting and uh, a, a sort of performance of the idea of a, a, gender, of, a gendered of character masculinity yeah. masculinity so it seemed to me that if you were really going to be gender blind about the casting of this you would have some men as well you'd have you'd have women men and mm. uh, binary no, sorry non-binary uh, actors and, and, the and chosen the, on their merit yeah and the specifics of the gender change itself does that say something that do we view do we see something new in the play because of that what is that saying I think it's drawing attention to a certain kind of construction of masculinity and in relation to power, in relation to power dynamics between uh, the prison staff, uh, the warders, the police, the, the hangman, um, the governor of the prison and the, and the prisoners mm. and a certain kind of masculine competitiveness. But it's not adding anything to my mind that we wouldn't have been able to read from that already. Um, and so I, I just think it's maybe at times some of the performances are are too literally trying to be masculine. OK, 15 uh, actors on stage in total here. That's a big cast and I suppose there are double ups and all of that type of thing going on across the across the cast. Were there standout performances? You've mentioned Gina Moxley and Barbara Brennan. Barbara Brennan, yes. Uh, Claire Barrett actually really stands she out. Plays she plays Warder Regan. Yes, yeah, that's a very important role because this is this is a man who's witnessed previous executions and who has a lot of compassion for uh, the, the men who are about to be mm. executed. And he also makes a really interesting, uh, it's a, he makes it as a, a provocative remark to one of his uh, senior is, is his superiors is to say why don't we stage these executions in Croke Park as a public spectacle because it's the Irish public who he's saying allegedly apparently wants these to continue uh, let's show them what this is what actually what the reality like, is what the yeah. absolute grisly grim appalling reality is uh, well, that's and that's Behan. a great that's a great comment you know and, and so and that's Behan speaking directly to the audience of the day I guess yeah absolutely yeah and uh, very you know and, and there's a lot of of there's a certain amount of uh, puncturing of pieties as a lack of sentimentality. So those things feel very fresh. Mm. So, I mean, I thought it was really interesting to see it again um, after all this time because we haven't, there's a whole generation who are not familiar with Behan. Yeah. And also Behan's work, I think, has been reappraised. Well, particularly this year, the centenary of his birth. Centenary yeah. year, but also critically in recent years. Um, and there was a brilliant book called Reading Brendan Behan, edited by John McCourt, published about four years ago by Cork University Press. If you want to read all the kind of new New interpretations of, you know, homoeroticism in the Borstal Boy or all of or yeah. a kind of a placing of being in relation to European modernism and to British writers and the British theatre. Yeah. That's I, I read that a few years ago and it really opened my eyes. Yeah, and it's kind of maybe an expressionism within Behan's work rather than the knockabout comedy that might have been the old way of looking at it and of, of it, not quite dismissing it, but minimising certainly but the effect yes, of the work. And also thinking automatically that people being 
heavily addicted to alcohol was automatically funny. Uh, yeah, that and I think we have that. a completely different attitude to that now as well. And so the, the production itself, uh, in terms of the production design, how does it, um, you know, I suppose, emphasise that that reappraisal of being, I believe, Paul Mercier or Mel Mercier, I beg your pardon, Mel Mercier's sound design and composition is important here. It's very important. There's a lot There's a lot of singing. There's a lot more music. You know, I suppose Tom Creed's, you know, recent work has been in opera mm. and he's bringing that in. I think to great effect. And I think, you know, the, the more productions of being move away from that utterly realistic uh, basis, I think the more interesting that they are. So I thought I, I thought as we go towards the second act, it becomes uh, more symbolic with the there's an open grave on the stage where the prisoners in their exercise yard are they're walking around it. And, and, and there's this sense of um, and the music is amplifying that or underscoring it yeah. um, of um, a, a kind of a more existential uh, dread. Yeah, really. and Eber Janine then, big song at the end, which I think is, is a very important element too. Are you recommending this production overall? I am because it's really worth revisiting Behan. And I think even though I don't think that the gender changes added as much as, you know, you, you they might have been expected to, it's really worth seeing a different take and an, mm. and an experiment in, in production. And I think it's worth seeing for that reason. All right, that's Helen Meany speaking to us about The Queer Fellow, which is at the Abbey Theatre until the 27th of January. Full details on abbeytheatre.ie. Marin Alsop is one of the world's most feted conductors, a groundbreaker and a smasher of the conducting glass ceiling. She's the first woman to serve as the head of a major orchestra, that being with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra in the US. She subsequently led orchestras in South America, Austria and Britain. Alsop is in Dublin to conduct the National Symphony Orchestra on Friday night and also during her time here she's been giving a conducting masterclass at the National Concert Hall with eight of the world's most promising young conductors. The programme for Friday evening with the National Symphony Orchestra includes Beethoven and Christopher Roos and the savagely beautiful piece which caused riots on its first performance as a ballet, Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. I was delighted to grab some time with Marin Alsop during a break from rehearsals earlier today. But before we hear that, let's listen to some of The Rite of Spring with its unusual rhythms, its constantly changing time signatures and strong accents which certainly land in unexpected places. Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, um, what a piece for you to be doing uh, with this debut with the National Symphony Orchestra in the National Concert Hall, which I know many people are very excited about. That piece, though, it's so essential. If you think of modern classical music, where would we be without the Rite of Spring? Well, it certainly is a, an iconic piece and a piece that, as you as you referenced, um, 
so accurately really changed the course of uh, music history in a way because uh, it was so forward-thinking and pushed the envelope on every front. I mean, just the instrumentation alone, it's huge. It must be 120 people on stage and um, the rhythmic complexity of it at the time, I think was pretty overwhelming. And uh, yeah, I don't know where we would be if, if Stravinsky in 1913 had not sat down and, and discovered that he had this crazy idea in his head. And it begins with what I think at the time must have seemed like the craziest idea. Is that a bassoon that he is starting off as this piece with, which is a big symphonic piece, let's call let's say it's not a symphony per se. Is that a bassoon? And what kind of sound is that instrument making? I think it even today when the piece begins with the solo bassoon, it sounds very alien, like a creature from another planet. And I'm sure that was Stravinsky's intention. Um, of course, the French bassoon, it, it has a different sound. So we're not hearing it exactly as we would have heard it, you know, in Stravinsky's uh, uh, premiere. But it's, it's still very um, haunting. When it moves on from that introduction into the second uh, part, this is where I think as a conductor, it must be both most exciting and most frightening in some ways. Where on earth is the downbeat <laughs> as this as this section uh, second section starts? You can hear a fairly steady growl from the from the low strings, but then these unusual time signatures. Where's the downbeat? Oh, where's the accent? Is it on the upbeat? Is it where the heck is it? What's the challenge there for the conductor? Yeah, it's it's sort of interesting. No matter how many times I do this piece, exactly. Uh, two times in the piece, my hands start sweating. <laughs> and that's because, you know, I'm anticipating these very complex rhythmic um, sections. And I think the the trick is really just to stay completely focused. Um, because if the musicians get nervous, you know, you can really, you can throw them off so quickly. Um, there's a funny story about my teacher, Leonard Bernstein, who uh, he studied uh, Rite of Spring with his teacher, Kusevitsky, who rebarred it all so that it was in binary time, 4-4 four, four time. And um, Bernstein once brought those parts and tried to do it that way. And no, no musicians could play it like that because, of course, orchestras today, they they feel this music um, intrinsically. And it doesn't mean you can't get off, but, uh, but it's a lot harder today than it was. Not, I was going to say for most of us, when I'm conducting Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, it's usually at home listening to a record. <laughs> um, and I do very well, but I'm always a little bit behind the orchestra because I'm, I'm, re- I'm responding rather than controlling. Yeah. I can only guess what the feeling is like as the conductor. When, when you're actually signaling those unusual rhythms, signaling those unusual accented beats, and you feel the power of the orchestra coming back at you. Well, it's uh, it's interesting because this week we also worked with eight young conductors on the Rite of Spring with this orchestra. And it it's fascinating. I said to them, listen, it, it's important that you hear everything, but you can't listen to anything because as soon as you listen, you're on your back foot. You know, it becomes more of a passive uh, experience and you have to drive everything yourself. So it's always a balance as a conductor, you know, of motivating everyone, letting them, um, letting them be themselves and, and really blossom. 
but also driving the music to where it needs to go. Uh, you mentioned Bernstein there. I'm, I'm wondering what kind of gestures he made when it came to this piece. Famously, you know, there are those who say well, Leonard Bernstein, dancer and conductor, the way he moved, he might shrug the shoulders to, in, uh, to show those upbeats. He might be almost kicking his leg, I would guess, at some points. And this is a piece uh, grounded in dance. Talk to me about that kind of relationship between the gesture of the of the conductor versus the gesture of a dancer to this music. Well, I think that you know the the primary objective as conductor is to um, be helpful to the musicians and and not get in their way, um, but to facilitate them being the best they can on behalf of Stravinsky. I think it's, what's interesting is that um, I studied this piece with um, Bernstein. And he was always very clear in this piece. So uh, I think, you know, he didn't take chances. He took chances when he knew he could. And, uh, you know, with the shoulders and the stop, no conducting, only my eyebrows. Um, but I wouldn't take those chances in this piece. <laughs> um, he was so instrumental. I mean, you probably wouldn't be sitting here today talking to me about conducting uh, the Rite of Spring in a, in a country that is foreign to you. Uh, how important was he? I mean, I think it was at the age of nine, you saw him, you turned to your dad and you said, that's what I want to do. That's exactly right. Yeah, my dad took me to a, a concert and uh, I saw the conductor and he was so different from all the other conductors I'd seen. Cause my parents were professional musicians, so I, they dragged me to lots of, lots of concerts. But this conductor was having fun and he was jumping around and he talked to the audience and... I said to my dad, ah, that's what I want to do. I want to be the conductor. And my dad said, great. <laughs> but I love it because you, you, your mother was kind of going, well, we'll come to you. Your mother had a reaction to something else. It was a, a teacher who said, you, you can't do that. Yeah. You're a girl. Yeah. Well, you're, well, you're nine, for starters. That might have been a, a reasonable point to make. Yeah. But saying you're a girl was not a, was not a good point. Your mother got very annoyed. Your father did something very different, a, a gesture that I think was extraordinary. Yeah, my dad, uh, he was much quieter than my mom. And uh, when I came down for breakfast that next morning, uh, I, there was a long wooden box and I opened it up and it was filled with batons. So that was his way of saying, you know, we support you and we believe you can do this. So don't get discouraged by any naysayers. I mean, a, a box of batons as a, as a present. Do you, do you still have any of those? Do you ever use it? Um, I, I do have the box. And uh, it's interesting. It's kind of funny. My dad, later in my, in my early career, when I was in my 30s, my, uh, I couldn't find the, the guy that had been making me batons. And I don't know, he sort of, he moved and his phone was disconnected. And I was lamenting my my state to my dad and he said oh let me see uh, i can i can do you like these batons i said yeah he said oh, i can make them so he said well how many will you need in case i get hit by a bus so i said i think 20 will take me through my career so he made me 20 batons it was very sweet and you still use them uh, now and then there you know my dad was um he was sort of a uh, um uh what's the word exactly he he wasn't a finessed um artiste he was, you know, he, he was an approximate guy. So some of them were really too sharp. Some are crooked. Some fought, fell apart. You know, it's a little bit like that. But they all, they were all made with love. And that, of course, is the important thing. You you made an interesting statement in the midst of all of that, though, saying that your father and mother 
dragged you to <laughs> to some concerts. It is. It is. A, I suppose this is a challenge for parents. To you do want to you want to drag your children. Do the children want to be dragged? Opening up music to that younger audience. How important is that? And how do we do it? Well, I think it's hugely important. Uh, and of course, no kids want to do anything. Um, well, I'd say these days probably anything away from a screen. You know, but. It, 20, 30 years ago, it was probably anything away from a ball. You know, it, it, it's just, um, I think it's just part of being a kid. And, and it's interesting because my son, our son, uh, who's studying here in Dublin um, at Trinity College just the, the one semester, we, we, I would say we forced him to play violin his, uh, up through high school. And he said, that's it, I'm done, you know, as soon as he graduated. And he asked us to bring his violin over. He asked me to bring his violin over when I came in September. And uh, so here he's out in the pubs playing violin with the Irish group. So, you know, music is something that it's a gift. It's a gift uh, that lasts a lifetime, whether you become a professional or not. It's something you can enjoy. It's a way to socialize, a way to meet people, to bond. And I think every child deserves that opportunity. You say that your son is potentially playing the violin in, in the pubs of Ireland. It kind of links in with Chris Rouse, the American composer whose flute concerto you're doing on Friday night as well. Yeah, um, Chris Rouse. So, who I think you possibly know from your Baltimore days. Yeah. He's, he's a Baltimore-based composer. It struck me within that, uh, I mean, when you listen to the flute part, the first movement and the final movement of the work are called Iron, the Irish word for song. And there's another section, maybe I think it's towards the end of the scherzo, where I can almost hear a reel oh, yeah. or a jig or something like yeah, that. Yeah, no, definitely. You, you definitely hear the the Celtic roots. His, you know, Chris was, I think he was exploring his heritage, you know, through this piece. And uh, it's interesting. I fell in love with his music long before I um, knew about much about the Baltimore Symphony. And then, as it turned out, serendipitously, he lived, he lived in Baltimore. And so we became great friends, and I'd spent a lot of time with him talking about music and uh, sadly he died a couple of years ago but um but I'm I'm a huge champion of his music Would Chris Roos's music exist without Stravinsky? One could argue right. probably not. But going back to that, uh, to the Stravinsky piece, yeah, we always think of those, you know, jagged rhythms and those difficult pieces as well. But there are sections within this piece as well that are beautifully melodic, which were probably screamed over in 1913, I'm, I'm guessing. There are some melodic moments, but I think I probably wouldn't, wouldn't describe Rite of Spring ever as a melodic piece. Um, I'd say it's a rhythmic piece, and there's lots and lots of um, feeling of, of dance and movement and momentum and drive. So that that's really, for me, even though there are these moments of oh. stasis and almost as though time stops, and that even makes the rhythmic sections feel more pronounced and more dramatic. 
Yeah, uh, one of the most dramatic sections for me, and again, I'm I'm, com- I'm thinking of Bernstein and this idea of the dance gesture. You know, the, the big slouching rhythm that comes along. Is it in one of the spring dances where we get the big whoom, dum, big low growling bass and like a slouching movement yeah, yeah, uh, within yeah. the whole orchestra? Yeah, it sounds a little bit like dinosaurs very slowly moving through the ancient forest. That's what I'm, I always think of. Is that useful for you then as a conductor? You know, because obviously you're trying to you're trying to convey to the orchestra some kind of emotional connection to the music. Now, yes, you're giving them the downbeat. Yes, you're pointing out you should be in now. Whatever you know, those things. There are technical things happening, but I guess it is about an emotional communication. That imagining of a scenario is that useful for you? Oh, it is. I mean, that, Bernstein was always talking about you know the narrative of the piece. And of course, there is a, an underlying story to the Rite of Spring, but I think for every conductor, there has to be some kind of personal connection and resonance. And, you know, I think it's very a very primal piece, and it feels, uh, for me, it's very um, animalistic in a way. And so I really do imagine all these different creatures, you know, whether the for the English horn, you know, I hear a little chubby hedgehog or, you know, for the E-flat clarinet, one of those crazy birds, you know, with, ah, ah, ah. and so, uh, you know, for me, that brings it to life in a different way. Um, we, we spoke briefly earlier about this idea, you know, when you when you wanted to start conducting at the age of nine, it might have been reasonable for your teacher to say you're a little bit too young. How difficult was it? You know, Stravinsky broke loads of barriers in terms of classical music. You, you certainly did the same thing in terms of conducting. How difficult was it because simply because of your gender to break through? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. I think it's difficult. It's a challenge for every young conductor you now, whether... Uh, regardless of gender, um, but I do think when when people aren't used to seeing women in roles, it it makes access a lot harder and opportunities fewer and further apart. And you know, for conductors, that's quite tricky because we don't have an instrument unless we have an opportunity. So you can't really grow at the same speed as your colleagues who have more opportunities. And uh, in 2002, I started a fellowship for women conductors just really to try to address that, to create more opportunities um, that aren't make-or-break opportunities, but where you can get experience, and also to create a community of women who support each other and are resources for each other. And in terms of the young young conductors that you've been working with while here in the National Concert Hall in, in, in Dublin, what is the gender balance there? What is the gender mix there? Yeah, I think it's perfect. It's um, six women and two men. So <laughs> I think that's, you know, that's that's our goal for the future. <laughs> we have to even it out for a while, huh? Yeah, and, and, and I'm guessing in those, I watched some of the classes, um, not these particular ones, but some that are available online. I watched how you, how specific you are with uh with the young conductors that you're speaking to. But it struck me that it was always about inviting the orchestra into the into the conductor rather than the conductor saying, I'm up here, I'm in charge, let me tell you, let me show you how this is done. Yeah, I think those, you know, that's sort of a, 
Those days are from the past, I hope anyway, um, where it's such an ego-driven, you know, me, 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 do what I want, do what, you know, I can't relate to that kind of approach at all. And uh, so, you know, I think most of the students that I teach are more of a similar uh, mind to me than, than to that old-fashioned approach. I think that might have been one of your annoyances with the with the feature movie Tar, where we had this female conductor, many of whose stories matched your own. But uh, you were you were quite cross about that film. Why? Well, I wasn't cross. I just gave one interview, and everybody blew it up into a huge deal. <laughs> but you know, I uh, I just uh, it, it for me it was a, a wasted opportunity. Why? Because if you're going to portray a woman in a leadership role like that, you shouldn't assume that they'll act like all their male counterparts have acted. And, you know, I, I won't forget the New York Times asking me that before I had seen the movie, um, my, my opinion, I said, well, I, I haven't seen the movie, so you have to tell me what it's about. And the journalist said, well, it's about the fact that women, when given the same opportunity as men, act in similar ways. And I said, well, don't you think that's a little premature to make that assessment since no woman in the history of the world has ever been given this opportunity? Reasonable point. Have you seen the, the, the Bernstein movie, Maestro? I haven't. I'm going to see it next week. And, but uh, Bradley Cooper's been in touch, and uh, I, I'm really... I'm really admiring of his work and his passion and his commitment to this story. You know, he, he wrote the story. He worked a lot with um, the Bernstein kids who are dear friends of mine. He reached out to me. I know he's worked with Yannick and lots of wonderful conductors. And he, you know, this was a real labor of love. Not only wrote it, directed it, uh, starred in it, produced it, you know, it it's a, it's the whole package. And what I loved about the the clips that he sent me um, was that he wasn't imitating Bernstein. He was really just trying to feel the music as Bernstein did and and not not be a pretend conductor, but be a, a real um, sort of conduit for uh, the spirit of Bernstein. And just finally then, to go back to those early days as a conductor when you, you did eventually persuade Juilliard and others that, yes, a girl stroke young woman could conduct. What Bernstein do you want to see on the screen? The Bernstein, I'm guessing, that, that taught you and that mentored you as, as a young conductor. Who is he? Is that the man you want to see? Um, I think that uh, I'm sure I'll see that person um, because this is a film that really focuses on uh, Bernstein's marriage and I I didn't know him at the time he was married his wife died quite quite a while ago in the 70s so I didn't know her um, I only know of her through her kids um, and who of course adored her and I I think this is about this is about humanity and and love and um, you know and of course compassion and conflict and all those things that make make up great love stories. Um, but Bernstein, I think, above all, was a great humanitarian, and he, he really did care about people. He cared deeply about the world. And uh, I learned more from him, I think, than anyone else about what kind of citizen of the world I wanted to become. 
Your son is studying in Trinity now. How long will he be here? Is this going to give you several excuses in the coming <laughs> years to visit here to, and perhaps to explore more of the Irish repertoire and more connections between Irish traditional music and classical music? Well, it sounds like fun, but uh, his semester is almost over. So, But I've been here, uh, let's see, certainly more times than I had been prior. So it's been a real a real joy to spend some time in the country. And, and uh, I've been able to see some of the countryside. Absolutely beautiful. So um, I, I'm sure I'll be back very soon. Maren Alsop, thank you so much for speaking with us this evening. My pleasure. Thank you. Marin Alsop there, who will be, of course, performing and conducting the National Symphony Orchestra this coming Friday evening in the National Concert Hall. It will all start off with Beethoven's Leonore Overture Number no. 3, then that uh, Concerto for Flute that we heard a little bit of on the middle, in the middle from Christopher Rose. Uh, Emer McDonough will be the soloist in that performance, and then the second half of the concert will be that monster that is... Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring and what an exciting performance that will be. If you can't get there, you'll be able to hear it on RT Lyric FM. Do believe it's going out live on uh, Friday evening. To find out more details about tickets, the few that are left, you can go to nch.ie. Since he started acting 20 years ago, Rory Nolan has made a name for himself as a gifted comic actor from the outrageous John Betjeman in Rough Magic's Improbable Frequency in 2004 through more recent outings as Russell Carroll Kelly and very recently Captain Boyle in Druid O'Casey this year. Now the poacher has turned gamekeeper. He's written his first full-length play, billed as a savage romantic comedy, You Belong to Me, is the tale of Patty and Pato, a married couple who have split up but still share the same house and delighted to have Rory Nolan with me in studio this evening. <laughs> 20 years ago I bet you were happy to hear that bit first of all Rory. I know yeah it's gone <laughs> it's gone in a flash if I'm being totally honest but yeah no 20 years at it yeah. No. Yeah yeah but uh, obviously this is a writing uh, outing it's not your first writing outing. No I've dabbled before I, I, I submitted a tiny play into Fish Amble's mm. Tiny Plays for Ireland years ago and it got selected which I was tickled pink about at the time and it was great fun um, but I, my acting commitments prevented me from actually being in any way hands on with it yeah so uh, and what was the basic premise there the basic premise was you they, they did an all Ireland call out for mm. tiny plays and they all oh, had but to, I mean yeah in, in your play itself so they oh, do these, the premise yes, my one yeah. was called it was actually called the audition and it was about uh, <laughs> uh, after the opening night of a production of Othello where an actor uh, bumps into a casting director and it was largely drawn from experience, uh, <laughs> and I'll, I'll leave it at that. But it was it was great fun to do. Did the actor get the part? Uh, no, no, no. Okay, so that's why you wrote a sarcastic play about <laughs> the following the following day. Actors rarely get the parts. <laughs> okay, mm. so that was this the short play, and it, mm. was, it was I suppose a short play, and the tiny plays that Preshamble do in that season, they're they're about a different thing. Some of them can be adapted into longer stories. I was just mm. interested to see if there was anything in that short play that became the basis for. Patty, for for um, you belong to me. No, nothing, nothing actually. Um, Pato and Patty arrived into my head. Um, I was in rehearsals. We were remounting, waiting for Godot, which I uh, did with Druid uh, on and off for a couple of years. And uh, I was in rehearsals, and I was on the. I was living in Wicklow at the time, 
and I was on the 133 bus up from County Wicklow mm-hmm. and I was reading the paper and there was a, an article about a couple who had recently been granted a court approved order to stay out of each other's side of the house. Who A couple who had essentially split up for all intents and purposes, but a judge had decreed that they had to live in this house uh, and not go into each other's side. And I thought this was absolutely mad. You know, I first of all, I felt sorry for the, for yeah. the couple, but, you know, circumstance probably prevented them from from getting out of their situation. So I, my brain started to kind of, you know, do loop the loop. And then at the same time, I was reading a book by Noah Yuval Harris, which was big at the time, called Humans, which was a kind of an anthropological study about humans and, you know, sociological, about, about how we got to where we are now. Mm. And uh, one of the interesting things that I found in it was that the idea of law are, the ideas of, of laws are actually just figments of our imaginations that we put into practice, to, you know, to maintain. We all agree. Order. To and, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But they were they were evolved essentially from gossip, which I thought was really fascinating. And then uh, the third thing was I was on the reading panel and uh, for Druid and we get about 500 unsolicited scripts into Druid every year that have to be read thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I was reading these plays and kind of critiquing them, having never written a full length play myself. And I thought, you know, who am I to say, you know, what's good and what's not if I've never gone through this process? Yeah. So I did a workshop with a guy called Graham Wybrow, who used to be the literary manager of the Royal Court. And I found him completely inspiring, really interesting, intelligent guy who was telling us what to look for when you're when you're reading plays and reading unsolicited scripts. And I actually left the workshop with more ideas about how to write them right. than I did to read yeah. them, or, or so I felt at the time. Um, so yeah, we I, I started, it, it came in about three or four spurts, uh, and I worked on it in between uh, while I was on tour. Mm. Uh, I finished it in DC, in Washington, and... Um, yeah, that was back in 2018. I gave it to a producer, the wonderful Sarah Cregan, who liked the play and got funding. And then the whole world came to a standstill. Oh, of course, yeah. With the dreaded COVID. So um, that was the kind of genesis of it anyway. Yeah. So obviously Godot was there in your mind and those those three aspects that you've put in there. But the fact that Godot is kind of in my head because I'm thinking of Didi and Gogo and mm. Estragon and Vladimir mm. and I'm thinking of Patty and Pato yeah. in, in your play. Are there some kind of parallels there or is that purely coincidental? There, from, from, from where I'm sitting right now, I'm going to say purely coincidental. But of course, osmotically, you know, something might have happened. Mm. Uh, you know, there is uh, uh, something about these characters having lived together, you know, so, you know, side by side for 40 years, married, essentially, and can't get out of their situation. Not so, unlike our two friends <laughs> in Waiting for God. Not unlike our two friends, yeah. So um, I, I suppose, you know, something seeped in yeah. somewhere along the line. And, and and I know there is a term for this idea, the salt separately and living together is, is is an acronym for the situation that Patty and Pat will find themselves in. Tell me a little bit more about them mm. and, and the, the, the pair that we meet mm. as we meet them. Yeah, Pato and Patty have been married for about 40 years mm. um, in a very unhappy marriage and... We meet them on the day where Pato arrives home with a court order saying that they have to divide the house that it is now legal and he's absolutely delighted. Mm. They have been living in this kind of very 
nasty kind of ripping each other apart sort of world where their identity uh, is really largely based on how they interact with each other. Um, and uh, yeah, so we meet them when the court order comes in and then there's a, a, a gentleman caller comes along who is essentially a legal executive who has a will which is from uh, Pato's recently mysteriously deceased dead mother. Um, I won't go into who the legacy yeah. is for or anything right. like that. And then all hell and more hell breaks loose. But yeah. um, if I want to listen to a clip from the from the uh, from the play, uh, because we get a sense here that this legacy, which involves a few Bob, might might be kind of needed. They they are on their uppers. They're really really on their uppers. Yeah, they're living in a world where tea bags are currency, essentially. Right. Well, <laughs> our clip concerns uh, a teabag. We should we should explain um, that we have uh, Liam Carney and uh, who's Clara, Simpson. Clara Simpson. Clara Simpson. Liam Carney and Clara Simpson in this clip. Then, where the row, as it is never about the teabag, but in this case, it is about the teabag. Where did you get that? Get what now? That. Oh, wouldn't you like to know? I do know you feckin' stole that. You feckin' crept over to my side and you stole it in the night. You're mad. She was only a feckin' teabag. She was not even... Wall. Thief, you stole into my side like a thief in the night to my side and fecked a teabag on me. My good feckin' teabag. It's my feckin' teabag, Patty. I have tea here. Show me. Show you? <laughs> I'll not show you nothing. I have so much tea here, I don't even need this. My good I'm straight telling, straight telling the judge. Well, I'm straight telling them too about the dancing and the interfering and the, the, the feckin', the feckin' noise pollution. Of all the... Oh, the high and mighty feckin' you're one here Take with a tea, tea that makes that her better than everyone else. It's never about the tea bag, is it? Never, it's like never about the tea bag. Yeah, no. Clara Simpson and Liam Carney there in a scene from "You Belong to Me." Uh, it's just a new, new play by Rory Nolan, who's with me in studio this evening, uh, and we we do get a sense there of the ridiculousness of the situation. Uh, how useful is it? You know, I, I, I talked about your background as a comic actor. How useful is that background when it comes to writing it? I mean, are you kind of saying it out loud for yourself in some ways when you're writing it? Yeah, I suppose I am really, you know, and uh, I mean, a lot of the stage directions, for example, in the play can be a little bit over prescriptive because I really was seeing it happen happen and kind of acting it out. And, you know, you know, I don't know, but, you know, working on plays by Tom Murphy or by Paul Howard and the Ross plays or O'Casey, you know, you're, you're, there's a certain rhythm that starts to kind of form in your head. Not that you can reproduce it or anything like that. I'm not comparing myself at all to any of these wonderful writers. I'm just saying that there's something happens when you're on the floor working on these plays, you know, day in, day out, year in, year out. You kind of start to pick up a certain rhythm. And as an actor, even, you almost start to look for it. Uh, we, we attempted to have one of the characters for yourself. There are two <laughs> other characters in here as well. We there are, yeah. The, the gentleman the, caller. The gentleman caller, whose name is Cliff, and uh, a character called Gary. Uh, no is the short answer. Um, 
I've been on stage all year. I'm kind of delighted to take to hand a, it over. Uh, to hand it over, take a back seat, and let the guys uh, work their magic. And now, um, Rory Nolan, tell me that you are behaving very well in this score. We all know uh, when actors have a writer in the room, how nerve wracking that is, and sometimes how annoying it is that yeah. you kind of think you've been here long enough now. Would you go away so that we can rehearse the play? I hope you've been giving them lots of space. Have L- you? Loads of space. Like it, it's it's a the whole truth. new it's a whole new world for me. I've been in a little bit but to be honest with you you have to hand it over and you yeah, have to trust yeah. the people who are, who are dealing with it and they are top brass they really are the best in the business so I'm very honoured and very flattered that they're all partaking in, in the play Overnight or opening night nerves are one thing for an actor you know um, but you, you get out there and you're doing it and yeah. that kind of deals with the nerves in some ways what about opening night nerves for you as a writer? How, what are you I expecting have, I, there? I, I kind of have no idea. I was able to separate myself. I knew that this was coming down the line earlier on in the year when the producer rang me and said, right, this mm. is happening. And I was able to separate myself because I am an actor. You know, I'm, I'm not even, I'm not, I wouldn't even say predominantly an actor. I'm an actor. Mm. Um, so I was kind of able to separate myself. But, you know, as the date gets closer and closer, I'm going to be totally honest with you, Sean, I'm a bag of nerves. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, as it gets closer and closer, it's becoming more and more of a, of a reality. Yeah, well, I know Tom Murphy would say he could, he could barely sit through an opening night. He just, he found it, he found it appallingly yeah, yeah, difficult yeah. Um, uh, to do just that. I'm interested too to see that um, it, I mentioned improbable frequency uh, and Arthur Reardon's send up of the, mm. of the uh, World War Two, the emergency here. You have you're back with some of the people from that. Um, Alan Farquharson is it? Yes, that's here, right. He's just one of the best designers in the country. He's amazing, and that was one of the things. You know, when I first saw his design, I saw it on a on a computer. It was kind of like a, a sketched out AutoCAD thing or whatever mm. they use, and. I just, that's when it became very real and I got very excited and of course he just got it straight away. He knew it. Um, and I've worked with Alan on a few projects, you know, over the years and he's he's just brilliant. So, yeah, and Lynn know, Parker is directing, yeah. The one and only, yeah, yeah, who who has been, you know, a huge part of my artistic life and my career and a great friend and she's just terrific. So. And now you know about the secret, um, the paranoia creeping in here, the secret discussions that go on between writers and directors that actors never hear about. <laughs> Are you party to any of that? Well, it's interesting to get show reports or, or rather rehearsal reports at the end of the day because that never happens before. So it's it's. I suppose it's interesting for me to see it from um, a whole other side, mm. really. You know, I'm used to being on the floor, working every day, you know, going home, learning the lines, coming in the next day. But yeah, you do. You, I suppose you see all the different facets more up close of what actually yeah. gets a production over the line and that's been really, really interesting. And now that you've you said to me you've dipped the toe in, would you would you put any of the rest of the leg in? Would you go in for a full swim? Would you write more? I don't know, yeah. If I if I found the time and if I, yeah, you know, it's been a really enjoyable, albeit nerve-wracking process so far but it's been, uh, it's been fantastic and uh, yeah, I've been enjoying it immensely. Uh, listen, enjoy the rest of it and I hope that the run goes well for you. That's Thanks Rory so. Nolan and Rory play You Belong to Me is at Smock Alley in Dublin from the 6th through until the 21st of December. Smockalley.com for full details on that. And that is our lot for this Wednesday evening, I do think it is. Um, who uh, Paula Shields was the researcher this evening. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Ashling Grufferty was on sound and tonight's programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. Talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.